There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Thanks for joining. For our third episode, I spoke with Ken Geyser. Throughout his career of teaching, writing, and organizing, Ken has been one of the most important theoreticians of the Toxics movement, as well as a Johnny Appleseed, having a hand in the creation, development, and sustenance of more than two dozen organizations while mentoring many other Toxic Avengers. Among many accomplishments, Ken was one of the authors of the landmark Toxics Use Reduction Act in Massachusetts. Ken served as the director of the Toxics Use Reduction Institute from 1990 to 2003, and in 2001 published his first book, Materials Matter, while teaching as a professor of work environment at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. I spoke with Ken from his farmhouse in Maine during a spring storm. His weather monitor added some background noise that may be detectable in some parts of the interview. We traced the path of his education and career, beginning with his childhood in Arizona. I'm very grateful for the chance to have spoken with Ken Geyser for the podcast. Here's our conversation, recorded in May. I have a, have a weather alert system. Wow. <laughs> that storm is going to bug us the whole night. <laughs> um, uh uh, carrying petitions around Berkeley to uh, put the uh, BART system underground uh, because we were we were really concerned that BART would create a line across Berkeley, uh, which would become a race line between um, uh, Western Berkeley and, and Eastern um, uh, class and race line. So when I see all my friends in Berkeley and when I leave Oakland and the train goes underground, I can always say, I, re I think that was one of my first political activities that was really a success. Um, That's great. Well, before we get to the, the post-college, I am interested, though. So are you from Tucson? Are you from Phoenix? Or? Um, I, I, Scottsdale. A little, oh, Scottsdale, okay. A, a little town that at, when I grew up there, there was no stoplights. We used to ride our horses into, um, into town. Um, and and uh, today, there's nothing left of the town that I grew up in. It, it got completely uh, redeveloped, and uh, uh, the high schools, the, everything is gone, right? Were they, were they doing spring training back then? They did baseball? do. They uh -huh. did do the spring training. They, they yeah. did that. We used to go to the games, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. And what did your parents do? Um, my father was um, uh, a computer engineer. Uh, worked for General Electric. Um, mm -hmm. General GE set up a a computer division in Phoenix to go head to head with IBM, uh, which they never succeeded at. <laughs> and my mother was a. Uh, a uh, activist in Planned Parenthood. Um, she was involved a lot in, uh, um, uh, that's also another wonderful story about 
um, uh, early uh, efforts to uh, uh, basically confront the limits on on uh, birth control literature and well, but yeah, so I came from an interesting background of an activist mother and a technically savvy father. And do you have siblings? I have a brother. Yeah. Who's still in still in Scottsdale? <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So it I mean it completely transformed around him, and he's yeah. been there the whole time. Right, right. That's very interesting. Okay, so you're 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 from a fairly conservative place at that time, particularly. Uh, I worked I, I worked on the Barry Goldwater campaign. Well, that's what I was about to ask you. <laughs> right. Okay, so you were a Goldwater. Were you a Goldwater? Democrat or a Goldwater Republican? Republican. Republican. Uh, that's okay. Uh, did you, so? Did you meet Goldwater? Did you ever? Yeah, 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 yeah. My mother. No. I, to answer your, to this could be a very long interview, Daniel. That's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in this stuff. So my mother. Um, I was actually born in Schenectady, New York, which is where GE was at that point. The research oh, lab. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so when my parents moved to open up this computer division. My mother, who'd been active in Planned Parenthood in Schenectady, moved, uh, joined Planned Parenthood there. The woman who was um, uh, the president of the board was Peggy Goldwater. Um, uh, and uh, so when my mother and the board members decided they were going to confront the Comstock law, which was the law which prohibited uh, uh, public dissemination of information on birth control, uh, Peggy and the board um uh, violated the law by handing out leaflets downtown. The police came by, picked them up, and discovered it was the senator's wife. Um, so they couldn't really arrest them. But uh, it was it. Uh, and my father was because he was head of engineering for GE. There, um, they were friends of the Goldwater. So yeah, the other big influence at that time <laughs> was I thought they built a house, and I when I was. 12, they built a house, and I was so enamored by it, I decided I was really into architecture. So my mother arranged for me to become a babysitter at Taliesin, which was Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, place. And uh, eventually, again, long story I won't go into, but I had an audience with Frank Lloyd Wright. Huh? Uh, right. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I was not expecting that. that that's... <laughs> That's quite amazing. Do you, what do you recall about it? Oh, it was great. I mean, I went to a dance recital his uh, with my mother. I went to a dance recital that his daughter did, and afterwards, a woman came, got me, and said, "Come to Mr. Wright's studio." And I went in. He was sitting at his desk, two steps above the. I stood there in my first little suit, um, and <laughs> he said. So I hear you want to be an architect. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, don't be mediocre. There are too many of them. <laughs> fantastic advice. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Huh. But, but I also knew there was something I didn't like about the politics of Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when I left, when I went to California to go to school, I was looking for a way to express my emerging, more humane political vision. And the free speech movement just turned out to be that. Um, I, I uh, uh, was walking across the campus when Jack Weinberg got um, 
uh, got arrested and put in the car. I sat down around the car um, and. Uh, uh, Is that right in Sprawl Plaza? Yeah, right, in Sprawl. Right by Sailor yeah. Gate? Yeah, okay. that's it. Um, Jack and I have had the joy of going back there and arguing about where the car actually was. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so as the night wore on and, you know, basically the media showed up and the police and everything else and all, we were there and uh, some woman sat down next to me and said, um, so what group are you with? And I said, group? Not a group. I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm, I was active with the John Birch Society. <laughs> she said, that's a right-wing organization. I said, so what? She said, this is a left-wing um, demonstration. And I swear, in the rest of the night, people sat down to me and gave me a new vision, just re-educated me. And, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it was a very important uh, period of my life. And is that is that when Mario Savio stands up on the top of the police car yep. and yep. Mario right was was the great spokesperson that came out of that yeah right you have a good memory for this yeah yeah that's uh I'm 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 from the Bay Area so oh, Mario okay. Savio yep you know right sure st still a hero still a hero yeah <laughs> yeah right. um okay so you're in Berkeley and uh you you got a, a bachelor's in architecture so yeah. that you you already had that going in right and how was that that part of it, the academic experience and the ac architecture program? Did you get a lot out of that? Or uh, Yeah. I love design. I loved really good architecture. The farmhouse here I've completely redone in terms of my own design work. Um, yeah. And I, I got done early uh, with my undergraduate work. So I got hired by Skid Moorings and Merrill, which was um, a really leading architecture firm. And at that point, they were they had a huge contract to put uh, I-95 through the city of Baltimore. Um, and so I moved back to uh, Washington, D.C., to their Washington office. I helped them set up the Washington office, actually. And then um, sort of by day, sort of work for the contract. And at night I would go up to Baltimore and help the community organize to stop the highway from going through. <laughs> um, and wow, uh, playing the inside and the outside right. game there. And uh, of course, as you know, uh, I-95 doesn't go through the city of Baltimore. It goes around. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so that was another success, but that got me involved in the anti-highway work. And, uh, and, and again, with the idea that uh, people mobilize and uh, 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 struggle for power in order to uh, advance history. And it's not simply what happens to the federal government. It's really about the capacity of uh, people to demand their own rights and their own co control of their own destiny. Um, and, right. um, and, and also it gave me a very strong appreciation for neighborhoods, for working class neighborhoods and working class people, um, both black and white. And um, uh, it, uh, it affected me a great deal, the, the, the work in Baltimore. And eventually in Boston, we were able to stop the highways. Um, and, uh, and in Seattle, another one where I worked. Um, 
You went uh, you went out to Seattle for that? I did. I did. I didn't do a lot. I simply documented what was going on there. But yeah, I did. It was had to do with the bridge crossing the uh the lake. So the a lot of those early fights over the highways are I mean, those are some of the early environmental justice fights really. Uh, they not all the they're not always some of the there's there's writing about them of course but it, it's not uh, you know it's different than the hazardous waste dumps or the incinerators but a very key uh, key example of uh, you know injustice or fighting for justice and like you said uh, local control of of a community's destiny you know early yeah, on yeah I think that's right and it was it was um, it's always was low income communities um right. but it was also often diverse i mean it it really went through black neighborhoods it went through white neighborhoods um, in uh, in baltimore it went through uh, fells point which was a white working class neighborhood it went through yeah. um the mulberry corridor which was um, uh, a black neighborhood and so we were able to mobilize black and white um folks um uh to to uh, try to stop the highway, which, of course, they were eventually able to do. Uh, so at some point, then, you, you go to MIT for graduate school. Right, right. Yeah, I was in, I, <laughs> I thought, well, this is all about urban struggle. Was, of course, you know, at that point, the civil rights movement was pretty um, uh, robust. And, you know, the, the, the summer of uh, 64, 66, I guess, was when the, the cities were, quote, burning. There was rioting going on in one of the cities. So I was really interested in taking my design capacity and and merging it with the social values and, and economic uh, questions about uh, economic and social justice. So I went to MIT to the planning department because it was known for being a kind of a progressive and activist oriented place. But there I, well, I continued to be, <laughs> continued to uh, be a, a political activist there and tried to, we, we managed to get MIT to disinvest in militarization, militarized uh, contracts and other kinds of things. But, um, but I also. That's significant. I mean, significant. That's, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's very significant. Okay. I also and Noam Chomsky is there at that time, right? And Noam, Noam was very important in my life. Then at that point, he was young, and and uh, you know, <laughs> of course, I was young too. But <laughs> he was young and active, and just this great thinker. And um, he and several other faculty, uh, sort of leftist faculty folks, were people who introduced me a lot into left politics and and gave me a, a kind of a orientation toward class analysis and power struggle. Okay. So you, you got your graduate degree in, is it urban planning? Is that the- well, it's an urban planning, but, uh, but when I realized, what I realized was I really liked universities. I, uh-huh. I really had grown very fond of teaching. I was a teaching assistant and then a, a sort of an associate teacher while I, in order to make money to get through the program. And, uh, and I really liked it. So I turned back to them and said, I want to get a doctorate. And, um, I would, I had some very good advisors who, 
supported me, and and, uh, and I went into the doctoral program. It took me another six or seven years to get through it. But, right. <laughs> right. What else were you doing during that block of time when you're getting your PhD? Is there, is there other stuff going on? Are you mostly teaching or is there other work you're doing at that period? I was most, I was teaching. I, that was the time that I bought the farm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was starting to be up in the farm a lot. Um, we were, I helped organize a couple of, well, one in particular, alternative high schools in in uh, Boston and Watertown, actually, um, for kids who couldn't make it in the in the uh, regular high school curriculum. And so we were doing a lot of of uh, working with kids. I was doing a lot of anti-war work at that point, um, and uh, uh, trying to do a lot of draft counseling and and all, uh, helping again working with low-income kids to try to keep them out of the draft and, and keep myself out of the draft as well, which um, I did. And, uh, and then uh, once I had gotten clear of the draft, I decided to take a semester off and I, I, a friend had a cabin in the Catskills and I just went there for three months and sat and read on my own um, and was a, uh, a point where I finally read Marx and Freud and a lot of the really important literature that would become important to me later. Hmm. Uh, And so Love Canal happens at some point in there, in the kind of in the middle of when you're getting your doctorate. No. Did that that register or? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it it had happened. um, I... I graduated from, uh, I got my doctorate in 1977, um, Mm -hmm. and um, I joined a small uh, group who were setting up a graduate program in urban and environmental policy at Tufts University Mm -hmm. as a a assistant professor. And uh, so I was, I went to Tufts um, and uh, uh, helped to develop this program, which is still there. It's great. Kind of great progressive little um, graduate program, but while I was there, I, I, um, I used to put kids out in students out into real field work um, as part of that program, um, and uh, uh, I sent a group of them up to Woburn, Massachusetts, um, and um, I said, "Do you want to look at?" I had one issue I wanted them to look at, which was an odor. And I wanted to see what they could do about trying to help this community with this odor. And they came back and they said, uh, well, essentially, they uh, introduced me into this uh, excess leukemia in Woburn. Um, and uh, uh, I eventually would get involved with the women, the mothers in Woburn. Uh, we wrote a report on hazardous waste and, uh, and the causality tried to suggest the causality of the leukemia was from the, the chemical disposal. Um, mm-hmm. Woburn had been the, the center of Massachusetts chemical industry in the early, uh, in the early 19th century. Um, and uh, there was a lot of waste from that period and all. And of course that was the same time that Love Canal was breaking. Um, and right. so uh, we put out our report um our report was certainly not as 
dramatic as what was happening at Love Canal, but because reporters were looking for evidence of things elsewhere, suddenly our little report became like a national report um, right. and on Woburn. Um, and uh, uh, from there, I began to... A couple of things happened. One is I met John O'Connor, uh, who was... Uh, who would event, I would eventually work with in setting up the National Toxics Campaign. Right. Uh, I met Lois, obviously, um, and uh, we became, I became one of the few faculty members. I had a, I was a professor, so I could go out to communities and talk about the chemical hazards and what was, what was likely there, what the potential literature said about health effects and things like that. But I, I became a, sort of a faculty member who was willing to go out and do training of community groups and, and be willing to be on news media and all um, about, uh, uh, about the kind of materials that might have been dumped in a dump site. It was also a time when I met Tony Mazaki, who was the... Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you actually, if you can turn off that ringer, yeah, it actually would be helpful. You would think being on a farm this way would not be disrupted as much, but... <laughs> Okay, so you were say you met John O'Connor, and I want to. Yeah, we're going to talk about the yeah. National Toxic Campaign. You met Lois, who is the leading, with yeah, was at Love Canal, right. and you met uh, Tony Mazaki. So say a little bit about Tony Mazaki for people who wouldn't know. Tony was an incredibly uh, dedicated um, trade union activist and an amazing man with a great heart. Um, he uh, he obviously. Uh, as a trade union leader, had an insight into working conditions and to the plight of working people. Um, uh, but he also um, raised um, occupational health and safety to the same level as workers' rights. And so for me, who was interested, had developed a strong interest in uh, working people and, and mobilizing them, uh, uh, I realized that some of the things that I was doing in the way of, of focusing on hazardous chemicals in dump sites as a community issue were similar to the things that Tony was working on in terms of chemicals in the workplace um, uh, as uh, risks for, for workers. Um, and so Tony had me uh, go out and do leafleting at various plants where he thought um, there was uh, potential exposures to chemicals, mostly metalworking plants um, and mm -hmm. the solvents used in metalworking operations so that we would raise awareness about it. But I also became very aware of the fact that um, workers didn't have any capacity to know what those chemicals were. So um, uh, Tony sort of introduced me into the whole right to know idea um, and uh, I became involved in Massachusetts in helping to write the the state right to know law for, um, and that was my first actual political work where I was involved with the legislature um, was trying to get a worker uh, right to know legislation in, in Massachusetts. So I was working with O'Connor on um, on kind of mobilizing people around. Uh, uh, Around actually around Sarah, around the uh, uh, re the reauthorization of the Superfund, um, and that's uh, in 1986. 86 it, it enacted in 1986. So I imagine it was 
There was a we couple were, of years in there, 84, right, 84, 86, yeah. yeah. And with Tony on occupational health and safety issues, and then my own work um, in working to support uh, dump site activism and uh, all. So, so, you know, is, back then, it, Daniel, basically chemicals were... correct that, you know, the, the Woburn, you know, student study on Woburn at the same time as, you know, Love Canal and then meeting Tony Mizaki, is that sort of your introduction to the toxics piece? Before that, you're doing more highway work and other, you know, it's, it's, it's urban planning, it's environmental, but that's really where toxic chemicals first kind of comes on the scene for you if, if as, right. a, as a as right if you will <laughs> i had not i i was i had gone into the dump site organizing work as one more example of citizens demand it was, it was similar i was carrying the work i had done in anti-highway work mobilizing citizens again what i was finding was again it was a diverse base of working class people who were uh exposed to these dump sites in their neighborhoods and mobilizing them was pretty similar to mobilizing people around the highway. So I went in not on a toxics, um, it wasn't toxics that brought me into it. I didn't understand that. I wasn't a chemist. I mean, I had chemistry, but I, 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 um, I had enough chemistry in, in regards to that at MIT. So I had a background um, that I could, um, basically do chemical assessments, but I, I wasn't a bona fide chemist. Um, and then Tony's work really extended that to uh, workers. And I began to see this interplay between them was the chemical. It was the, it was the issue of the chemistry. Um, and, uh, uh, and for me then, I began to look and sort of try to understand, well, why... Why are these chemicals being used? If they're dangerous, isn't the government supposed to control that? Isn't, the, isn't that supposed to be? How could, how could these workplaces be? Um, uh, how, how, how come OSHA was not banning these chemicals if they were? So it was, uh, right to know became really important because it was a, gay, a, a way to mobilize workers around the issue and particularly trade unions that I could do with community groups as well. So right. uh, the other last piece of that was Ronald Reagan had been elected yeah. and my our all of our access to the federal government had suddenly closed down. So uh, we were being pushed to work in the states. And so for me, working in Massachusetts became a a kind of a, it was my arena for action was was Massachusetts. Talk a little bit more about uh, the National Toxics Campaign and what that was and what you and John O'Connor did with that. Well, it was about, there was about six of us who were involved in initially in um, setting up um, the campaign. And uh, what we were trying to do was create a vehicle for mobilizing, for advocacy and for mobilizing um, working people in these dump site groups and all into a movement. And because of I had really taken a lot of what Chomsky and others had talked about movement building as being the basis for 
uh, creating history um, rather than federal policy or, or government legislative policy. Right. Um, I was really attracted to Johnny's movement building idea that we build a movement of people all agitated around the country. And of course the vehicle became Sarah and, right. uh, and eventually EPRA, obviously, um, right. uh, that, um, would sort of be, um, uh, the point that you could do the mobile, bring the various a- activity out of the neighborhoods and into a vehicle for, um, for uh, 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 focusing all of that mobilization um, uh, and, and all. So if these pieces are falling into place. Um, the idea of the chemical, there's something about the chemical that's linking these dump sites with this worker problem. And the movement, and a movement is a way to begin to build power around that set of issues so that we could maybe try to create a more protected uh, uh, set of neighborhoods and workplaces. And, and um, so it was pretty primitive, it, it, but it was, it's what the dump site work had done um, for me, which was that. And so this is early to mid eighties, roughly. So right. um, Earth Day has happened in 1970, a long time ago. And that did that, I don't know if, first of all, did you, do you have any connection to Earth Day or, or do you remember, I don't know, do you remember where you were on Earth, the original Earth Day or, and did it, did it have, because you're describing a very early part of the, the nascent toxics movement really. Uh, yeah. And, and that's much later. So did Earth Day have a toxics component or was that not really part of what was going on at that time? It comes a lot later than. A lot later, Daniel. I, I mean, I, where was I? I was in uh, Earth Day. I was in Golden Gate Park smoking a lot of dope. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you probably could still do that if you want. <laughs> it's, um, now it's legal. Right, now it's legal. <laughs> um, but uh, it, um, there wasn't a toxics movement. There was an ecology movement. What, the, right. what, the, um, what Earth Day did was mobilize something which... I, I would call the ecology movement. Mm-hmm. It was a, a movement about um, about the environment as a biological system, and that uh, basically we were damaging the biological system of the Earth right. um, by, in in many ways. And what we really needed to do was protect and preserve this wonderful planet. But it really was about conservation. It really was about protection. It wasn't about um, angry outrage. Um, it wasn't about working class uh, mobilization. It was about middle class mobilization and kind of doing good while living well and kind of, uh, you know, buying things, not, not, not wasting a lot and right. living, you know, simply. Uh, uh, there wasn't, I think, I, I was maybe more critical than I should have been at that time, but um, I, I saw the ecology movement as kind of uh, too soft. It was just not, it wasn't aggressive enough to really cause change. Um, and uh, uh, and I was really interested in building a more vibrant and anger-based and rights-based um, kind of way to think about the environment than um, a 
sort of protection and uh, and conservation and more more um, more wilderness and 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 whatever. I love wilderness and I love nature, but uh, that wasn't the way I saw. I was I've always been involved with power building, so it was like, right, right. So um, I want to ask one more thing about right to know because that's a transition to the Toxics Use Reduction Act. So in the in the federal law, 1984 through 1986, you're fighting along with Tony Mazaki and others for this concept of right to know, and that's right for workers to know what chemicals they're exposed to in the plants where they're working, and it leads to the toxics release inventory, which is a law that or a program that um, requires many not met many but not enough but many companies to report on the emissions of about. What is it? Two hundred chemicals, something. Three hundred and twenty, right now. Okay, and um, and so that is you know one way that people in communities have learned about plants, you know, facilities in their neighborhoods, you know, how much they're releasing into the air or the water of various toxic chemicals. So those are sort of two pieces of the right to know concept, which continues to really permeate and be a driver for all kinds of action and activities, you know, the market-based work that many people are doing, wanting to know what's in our chemicals and wanting to know what's in the cosmetics, all of that. The, the right to know idea is a very, very powerful idea that kind of came to fruition right at that time. So just say a little bit more about that because it's, it's, I don't think it's, it's really interesting that the, the birth of that concept and how, how much power still exists in that very simple idea. Yeah, I think, and you're right, there's a, the, there's the birth of something there, um, which I'll come back to in a moment. But uh, yeah, I, you know, we were, we were struggling around, around Sarah, around the reauthorization of the actual cleanup activity. Right. There was also um, uh, uh, an interest in sort of emergency response and uh, right. and you know there were some accidents and things like that were going on so that there was chemical accidents so there was an in- interest in uh creating a better informed fire uh service and local fire departments to know more about uh chemicals in plants for instance um where the where the tanks of various potentially explosive chemicals were in on sites and things like that that so there was a there was a lot of that um as well uh going on um it's a uh so all of that is happening another thing happens at that point and here we come to um i'm going to save that right to know thing no i'll i'll address it here it's the birth of for me an understanding that information is critical. Um, I don't think I fully understood, and I don't think we any of us did, was that information itself, visibility or um, uh, being able to understand what's going on has an empowering capacity. And so what we talked about REACH a while earlier, the fact that REACH has primarily been successful at driving a lot of information right. is not to dismiss it. That is, in fact, a tremendous power. And it was around the TRI as well. The TRI, as you may remember, basically, it was put into the legislation in order to uh, require EPA to get computers. Um, 
so that they could, because EPA didn't even have a mainframe at the point yet, mainframes. Um, uh, and so the idea was put something in there. E- EPA wanted something in there about collecting the information. What's his name? Dingle was willing to uh, put it in uh, because he thought there was a lot of chemicals getting released in Michigan, and he wanted to know more about that. This is Congressman John Dingle, the representative yeah. from Michigan who was right. served in the House for four decades or five decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. great guy. And so there was a lot of information, a lot of idea of getting the information, getting information collected around toxic emissions. Um, and the idea was nobody knew how to do this, um, but it, but the firms had the information, or it was assumed the firms had the information. Right. Um, but our right to know struggle had taught us the firms don't have that information, uh, that they would have to go get it. And that turned out to have its own uh, and plays out in the toxic use reduction in, in a few minutes. I'll come back to that. Yeah. Is that requiring the firms to release information on the chemicals that they use, either to workers, as in TRI, or as in right to know, or to government and TRI, meant they had to go find out what the chemicals were that were in their workplaces, something they, they just didn't know. But one other thing happens, 1984, um, is the gas release at Bhopal. Yes. Um, and so the gas release happens. Um, and of course, it's this tragic case. Um, there's one other little piece to put in here before I get to the important part here. Just say what Bhopal was for people who wouldn't okay, have yeah. never heard of that. Sorry. Um, Bhopal is the name of, uh, of a state, actually, in, um, uh, no, it's the name of the ta- city in, in, uh, an agricultural state in India, in central India. And uh, on, what is it, December 4th or 5th? I can't remember. Um, and that evening, um, uh, isocyanide, um, a cloud of gas from a pesticide uh, plant um, uh, was released over a neighborhood. And in a matter of one night, um, and here the statistics are difficult, um, but 2,500 people died. Um, another maybe 10,000 people were um, affected by the gas and maybe another 100,000 um, in the months later um, would come down with various symptoms. The worst chemical hazard, um, worst chemical accident um, in our history um, uh, as a people right. um, happened on that one night. I had, by now I was at, Tufts. Um, I was a young professor and all. And um, the industry in Massachusetts was a burgeoning electronics industry um, and largely uh, the beginnings of the computer industry in the sense of at least semiconductor computers. And um, I, we, I, we'll go through the whole thing, but um, we got to, a group of us got together to um, try to reveal the vulnerability of Massachusetts to the electronics industry. And in that period, I had remembered one thing, and that the biggest lobby against the TRI, against the right to know in Massachusetts, had been the electronics industry. And that confused me because the electronics industry was supposed to be a clean and safe industry. I didn't understand why it wasn't the traditional industries in Massachusetts that were against the right to know. It was the electronics industry. And so I, during that period, I began to look at the chemicals used in, in semiconductor production. 
And I realized these are really dangerous chemicals. Um, and these were chemicals ending up in the dump sites um, in Massachusetts. Um, these were the chemicals that the communities were worth. So there was a, now a third place for me to understand chemicals um, in this area. 1984, the gas release happens. I have just written a paper about chemicals in electronics, which is circulated, um, one of my first academic papers, actually. Um, and also, I've become known as somebody who says the electronics industry is dealing with really hazardous chemicals. Um, uh, and I get, a year after the gas release, this is 1985, yep. I get an invitation um, from the organizers of a large international uh, chemical plant accident conference at Bhopal, um, mm. Dakota Bhopal, and speak. Um, and so I go to Bhopal, um, and um, uh, I, <laughs> it, I actually ended up at a, an incredible rally in front of the gates of the plant um, and uh, at a night rally that was just one of the most amazing experiences where I gave what I'm convinced is one of my most provocative talks I have ever given because um, it got interpreted by an interpreter who I believe jazzed it up <laughs> a good deal. And it became one of probably the most anti-capitalist talk I have ever given. But anyway, you've never seen the, the transcript of the, of the translated yeah. version of that talk. The crowd loved it. <laughs> that was it, that was in front, like at the gates of the plant. At the gates, at the oh gates. Of the, it was. It was. Uh, I was told it was a candlelight vigil. Well, it turned out it was torch lit. Um, <laughs> only, only men, oh. all in white. As far as I could see, oh I was God. up on a scaffolding, um, and I gave this torrid talk about how irresponsible corporations were and how capitalism was definitely the, the villain here. But the other part of it was I and a physician um, were asked if we would be willing to go out to the neighborhoods where the people had died. Mm. And so we spent two afternoons going out to the neighborhoods and um, they set up little card tables in the neighborhoods and people would line up to tell us what happened. I can't tell this story, Daniel, without the emotion that comes from remembering yeah. what that was like. Yeah. It was a very, very powerful, um, a very powerful and moving experience. And when I asked um, what can I do? Um, I remember a woman saying, go back to your country and make sure this never happens again. And I made that decision there that I would stop the threat of toxic chemicals if I could do anything in, that would be good for my life. Yeah. And um, so I returned to Boston, with, went to O'Connor and said, basically, we've got to, it isn't about cleaning up the waste. It's not about making the workplace safer. We have to go after the chemicals. We've got to stop the toxins themselves. And um, so from there, I just shifted a lot of my work into, I got to know more about these chemicals. I, got, I, I need to know more. Why are they toxic? Why is industry working on toxic, toxic chemicals? And it was just a very 
it became an obsession of mine. Uh, and uh, uh, John, uh, <laughs> bless his heart, uh, said, we have to, we've got to, we have to stop the use of the chemicals. And I said, yeah, that's it. It's not about the release. It's not about, it's not, the TRI is a good, it's a good vehicle, but it's not the release that's important. It's the use. Right. And of course. It's the front end, that, not the back end. Right. Yeah. That would become later um, the uh, connection between a hazard-based and a risk-based set of assessments. Yes. Was, right. But I, I wouldn't have known that at that point, but that was what we were dealing with. Yeah. So the really pivotal point for me was Bhopal. It was that afternoon, those afternoons in Bhopal, because all of that that I've told you to this point was just precursors. Right. There were pieces beginning to fall into place, but it wasn't, wasn't that I understood really that it was the chemicals themselves that was the problem. Um, and so from that, we developed this idea of toxics use reduction. Um, we should stop the use of the toxics. And who can do that? It's the firms. And how can we move this movement um, uh, around hazardous waste into a movement for toxics use reduction. Um, and uh, uh, that became the vehicle for uh, writing a draft, which we put into the legislature in 1987, 86, I guess, 86. Yeah, in 86. Uh, the PERGS got behind it. Public Interest Research Groups, which is a organization founded by Ralph Nader that has, maybe it still has, it certainly had a very great existence on campuses all over the country working on both environmental and consumer protection issues and did a lot of advocacy in certain states, particularly there were certain states where they were particularly active and effective and Massachusetts would be right at the top of the list. So MassPerg is a, still an organization that is doing a lot and they had a Great history of this kind of what you're about to talk about, activism in the 80s and 90s and beyond. No, they were a great vehicle for it. They were, you know, it was young people that were willing to go out and canvas and, and all. And it was just really exciting to have them be the vehicle for uh, mobilizing people into this. Into this and, uh, and all. So we, we drafted this this uh, bill, um, uh, a couple of the staff people on that, on the uh, at national at NTC, uh, um, uh, drafted the language. We introduced it. Um, there was a very um, aggressive young representative who sponsored it. Uh, we didn't get anywhere. Within the next year, we put it back in the legislature. Uh, it's now a more sophisticated idea. It was beginning to build a bunch of things into it, like uh, the fact that uh, there needed to be an inventory, an annual inventory, not on release, but on use. Mm -hmm. um, and that it needed to be um, a mandate. Um, firms, any firm that generated hazardous waste needed to be responsible for um, identifying how they would reduce the use of, of the toxic chemicals in their production operations. The third year, uh, basically, we had the power at that point in Massachusetts of taking this to the ballot. Uh, and uh, uh, the Pergs understood 
that if we put on the ballot um, a law that would uh, have firms reduce the use of toxic chemicals, we would we would easily get that through. Um, <laughs> so we suddenly found ourselves in a position where the legislature said, "Whoa, you know, <laughs> we we will we'll pass this, but you have to sit down with industry and write it together." And so a group of us, um, about all together, about six or seven people. Margie Alt was one of the people, actually. Margie from the Pergs. From the Pergs. Yeah. Um, Who else do you recall? Uh, uh, um, Mike Ellenberger. <laughs> Mike Ellenberger um, from uh, UMass Lowell. Uh, um, myself, I was at Tufts at that point. Um, and um, who else? Bill Ryan from the Pergs. Um, uh, there was one other person. I don't know. But anyway, yep. whatever. Um, so we met every week for six months and worked out the language of this. I mean, we wanted, I think we wanted uh, that firms would be responsible for reducing the use. And the industry said, you can't do that. They, we settled on the idea of planning, that they would have to produce a plan on how they would reduce. That turned out to be brilliant. That was a very, very smart idea, mm-hmm. as was the inventory, the annual inventory, um, uh, which was very good. We, needed, we decided we needed not only technical assistance, the state had to come up with a technical assistance arm. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but we also wanted something in the, we wanted to drag the universities into it because we said, you know, we should make this part of the universities. We decided it needed to be a state university. It couldn't be a private college. It needed to be a state university. So um, the folks at Lowell were very eager to get a hold of this. Mike Ellenbecker was at Lowell and he wanted it there. And it kind of came down to me to decide where it should go because everybody thought I would push it to Tufts. But I said, no, it shouldn't go at Tufts. It should go to the state university. And so uh, that was the idea. Well, we eventually got the bill through, um, and it was passed unanimously and in the legislature. Really? Bipartisan. Huh. Bipartisan, right? It, um, and uh, uh, it became law in, in 1989. Um, who are the who are the industries on the other side of the table? Was it particular companies, or well, you know, was the electronic sector there for that, or was it trade associations? It was certainly the electronic sector was there. Okay, um, Monsanto was there because Monsanto had a big plant. Okay, um, uh, Exxon was there. Um, Exxon doesn't have a big plant, but Exxon <laughs> basically they knew that. Uh, this was a that this was something that they needed to watch, so they were there. Um, but in the middle of that fall, <laughs> um, the Valdez Exxon Valdez incident took place. <laughs> I and mean, so it's not s- funny, but yeah, the this is yeah, this is a big uh, release of oil into Prince William Sound. Yeah, uh, uh, from ta- a tanker. Um, uh, and uh, Exxon was the culprit in this, um, yeah. and suddenly their lobbyists disappeared because they had other things they had to worry about. So getting Exxon out of the picture, they were thugs, and getting them out of the picture was really helpful. Yeah, because we could work with the local 
as one electronics person said to me in the negotiation, if you can show us how to make semiconductors without using toxic chemicals, we will do it. <laughs> and I said, you're on, we're going to do this. The other thing that proved to be important to the uh, law was that the, the legislature said it can't raise taxes. So um, basically we said, okay, what we'll do is set up a trust fund um, and that all the firms will have to commit funding into this trust fund every year. Um, and that money would be used to, uh, to fund the program. I won't go into the whole dynamic of how that worked, but it turned out to be another really important piece of it because it gave us a block of money that was every year we got that amount of money. Here was a program that generated its own funds naturally every year. So it's self-sustaining. Is it? Is the program still self-sustaining still <laughs> to this day? To this day, <laughs> it has. Uh, I, I when I hired people into it, I would say, "Now look, this don't bank your life on this. This is a project. It's not going to be here forever." <laughs> totally wrong. I mean, we we've kept it going. Uh, uh, yeah, it's really it's been. Anyhow, what would happen then was um, I got recruited from Tufts to go to Lowell um, um, for a bunch of different reasons. But one was I could have doctoral students. I could do real research and all. I wanted to be – Tufts is a pretty privileged school. I really wanted to be in a place where I could really work with working class kids and stuff. Um, uh, there were a bunch of other political things that I – a bunch of leftists had taken over the administration. We thought we could have a fun time at this, uh, you know, state uh, branch university. Um, uh, and, uh, and that turned out to be really a great thing because, I mean, I, my other possibility was going back to MIT. Um, and I, I just knew I could never excel at the school that I had been a student at. Um, I, needed a, I needed my own turf. I needed my own place. Um, by now, though, another thing was going on, and that was um, that uh, we were really committed to this idea of not, because we couldn't do anything under Reagan, mm -hmm. um, we really were trying to empower the states. Yeah. Um, right. And the vehicle that we used for that was the pollution prevention movement. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to do was build, get laws passed in every state on pollution prevention. Massachusetts would have its toxic use reduction program, which would in some ways be the best funded pollution prevention program. But we wanted to make sure all the states, and, and eventually I think we ended up with 28 um, of the states have passed pollution prevention laws. Um, and we created a, uh, a round table, the National Pollution Prevention Roundtable which met every year and brought all of these state people together um, to, you know, trade stories and you know, a lot of technical assistance. We could um, uh, uh, put together these ways in which we could teach each other about industry. And, and of course, I could teach people about chemicals. And so I always ran workshops on hazardous chemicals and how to, how we could advance, you know, which chemicals were prioritized and all of that kind of thing. So we could empower this branch of the states. And that was, of course, the other big piece of the toxicity reduction and pollution prevention movement 
was that um, the states had authority, but they didn't have, they weren't banning chemicals. They were actually promoting the technical capacity of the firms to do the work of changing out of the chemicals in order to reduce pollution in this case. And, uh, and it gave the TRI another raison d'etre, which was every year you could see what states were doing, how, who, was, who was doing better than whom. We created this whole thing, and we could use the TRI as a vehicle for looking at, at how uh, reductions in emissions were going down and things like that. So it created a whole thing. So there was a whole movement there, a whole period from about 1980. 84 to about 1992 or four, uh, which was pollution prevention um, and um, was really valuable. So after the Toxics Use Reduction Act is passed in 1989 and you moved to um, Lowell, University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Yeah. And you're running at that, you start running that you're in charge of the Toxics Use Reduction Institute. Institute, yeah. And um, and you're working on this pollution prevention. So over this whole period, you're also doing a lot of scholarship and policy writing. And then you're also teaching because you've been a teacher for your uh, professor your whole career. Yeah. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about each of those components and how they uh, – it's another thing about your um, – you know, I, I, I kind of – I mean, maybe maybe you don't want me dividing up your life on your behalf, but you know, I think to me, there's the teaching, which is its own livelihood and and you and universe. There's the scholarship and policy, and then there's the advocacy movement building piece. And so, I'm interested in how all how you integrated all three of those over that period, and particularly, it sounds like starting right around when you go to well, maybe no, maybe it's before you mess a little, but those three strands are all happening at the same time. Yeah, it was just a very, um, I mean, I was very lucky. I just had a really, I ended up in a really unbelievably great situation, a situation which would be nearly impossible to replicate today in a university. I'll say that. Yeah. It was just, I was in a new universe. I was in a university. It was an old university, but it had been taken over by a bunch of progressives. So I, my back was covered and I, I, I and I was, I was I was brought in as a quote star, uh-huh. not only because I had a big name, but also because I came in with about a million and a half dollars a year. Um, right. So hello, right? <laughs> um, right. Um, you don't get a faculty member like that often. Right. Um, you were a star after the speech in Bhopal, or I was, no, just the fact that I was well known in the academic circle now, and yeah. um, in Massachusetts, I was known as a rebellious, kick around guy, and you know, and yet at the same time, I was doing writing, I was doing research, I was you know on chemicals, obviously, and right, um, and uh, and and on the pollution prevention movement and stuff. Uh, uh, of course, part of that was getting the national. The Federal Pollution Prevention Act passed um, as well, which was another big piece of that. But to answer your question, so um, UMass Lowell turned out to be as as I as MIT wouldn't have been. I was I just had enormous amount of flexibility to do what I wanted, um, and um, I, there was resistance among some of the faculty. As one wonderful environmental engineer said to me. 
um, if you're successful, there are any more toxic chemicals, then I'm out of business. I said, yeah, yeah well, that's true. <laughs> um, it also had one of the leading plastics engineering firms, departments in the country. So I suddenly was up against a whole bunch of polymer engineers, oh. which which turned out to be terrific because it gave me an insight into polymers and plastics. And, that, uh, yeah, that's really right. interesting. That's fortuitous. Fortuitous. And, uh, um, uh, but I was able to combine all of those things as well as still now that with the death, with the, the dismantling really of the national toxic campaign and then eventually the death of Johnny, that avenue kind of collapsed or disappeared. Yeah. But I was recruited by Greenpeace to come and join as an advisor to the Greenpeace toxics campaign. Dave Rappaport um, at that point was head of that. Yeah. David was a student of mine at Tufts. So um, he had recruited me to come uh, to be an advisor. Well, I was an advisor for two years, and then they asked me if I'd join the board. So I then joined the board at Greenpeace. So now I had a, a kind of different foot in the field in the in uh, in the environmental advocacy world. Right at a time when uh, when there was a mushrooming of new little startup NGOs. Um, uh, typically, up until that period, there were the big NGOs in 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 uh, DC. Right. There were some normally conservation-oriented NGOs at the state level, yeah. but there weren't really toxics-oriented NGOs right. um, at the state level um, and all in the, I mean, uh, that were spawning. Uh, other, Lois was, in many ways, the star of that. Right. Um, but now there were a lot of little, gra- you know, Michigan, the Ecology Center, Washington, uh, what became uh, what Laurie did eventually yep. there in California, the toxics tap, tap, tap. I can't remember what tap stood for. Um, but it, the states began to develop all of these little NGOs. And Greenpeace, of course, had a lot, was a big uh, factor in kind of supporting a lot of that. And, and uh, so that was a big piece. At one point, um, I, so I was, now sort of commuting back and forth between Lowell and Washington as in, with Greenpeace and all. At one point, it looked like I was going to become the chair of the board. But I decided this was not going to go down. I was keeping this Greenpeace thing <laughs> secret because I didn't want all these industries that I was now coaxing into uh, into doing the planning and all. I didn't want them to find out I would... I'm on. I'm chair of Greenpeace's board. I mean, it was hard enough to convince. Um, I mean, the chemical industry by this point was dead set against toxic TUR type programs passing in other states. Right, toxics yeah. use reduction. That was a right. model that they could not allow to spread. They couldn't allow that to spread. Yeah. And I, but I, I didn't want to, you know create more problems than necessary. So I kept Greenpeace out of the, um, um, and uh, uh, continued to support the development of these little NGOs. And um, uh, one of the things, so to answer your question, I was doing the advocacy 
largely off record. Yeah. I was doing the teaching. I was in a new Department of Occupational and Environmental Health. Yeah. I was the environmental side of it. I had great students. I could have doctoral students. I could actually fund doctoral students um, out of the TUR program. So I had really new gifted people like Joel Tickner, yes. like Mark Rossi, like Sally Edwards, like, you know, I just had these terrific people who were excited about what we were doing and wanted to be part of the a part of this game. Yeah. Um, I also was beginning to develop an international reputation. So um, the woman who was head of the cleaner production program in Paris um, for the United Nations asked me if I would join the board of that. So I would also um, go to Europe twice a year to kind of promote the idea you can plan to get toxics out of production systems. And we were developing clean production models and cleaner production models, particularly for developing countries. Um, and uh, so all of that was there. And then basically within the university, I was becoming, I mean, I'm a nice guy. You know, <laughs> you can disagree with me. You can, you know, whatever, but you got to like me. I mean, I'm just, I, I'm just a likable guy. And even, even my plastics engineers who were just totally, uh, hostile to me for what I was doing. You know, we'd go out for lunch, I'd go out for beers, you know, it was like, and I could laugh and tell jokes and, you know. Right. So I I had grown into becoming a pretty good organizer inside the university. We were building a really fine university, working class university that could serve as a place for, um, uh, for doing advocacy work and doing political work and all um, and, you know, Lowell really had a great heyday of that. Um, uh, I was careful, though, not to do anything with the Torah program outside of Massachusetts. So I needed another vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, so Barry, we, <laughs> I hired, we created a context of a fellowship for Barry Commoner to come to Lowell. Um, and Barry said, you should set up a, a center about sustainable production. So we created the Lowell Center for Sustainable Production. And Lowell Center could take what Tory was doing and take it outside. And uh, people like uh, Ruth Henning mm -hmm. um, was willing to give us funding, or Diane Ives out of Candida. Mm -hmm. um, so we could pull together a block of, of um, uh, funding and go provide technical assistance to all these little NGOs that were setting up around the country, right. whether it was the California folks or, or um, the, the New York folks. We provided a lot of um, Connecticut. We did a lot. Of, we we're doing a lot of, of, of providing technical training and guidance. Um, uh, and I'd also, I could see that this was a model, a good model of movement building, having these little nodes around um, uh, and, uh, and we're also interested, I was learning about sector, how you could work within sectors, because we were working in the electronic sector and the metalworking sector. Yeah. And to some degree, uh, those were the two big sectors in Massachusetts. And one of the things I had learned was, if you brought the staff together of the various firms, they would teach each other how to do it. And people were always worried about, 
trade secrets and, you know, violating trusts and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, there are almost are never any real trade secrets, at least in the work that we were doing. And, you know, they would completely spill their trade secrets to each other. And they would, you know, we put them in a room and have them talk to each other and they try to outdo each other about what they were doing. And they were teaching each other and much more interesting much more effective teaching than would have been from a professor. Um, um, and so we were learning how to do what would become kind of good market campaign work by getting people to do work in the actual firms. All of that was was sort of kicking along in a nice, kind of a nice way. And also then, I mean, I, I could see... we. A lot of the, the pollution prevention movement, for instance, and all was white. And a lot of the NGOs were white. But um, I had a woman, I'd hired a woman who was my administrator, who was an African-American woman. And she kind of really pushed me hard to try to uh, bring in um, minority communities and people of color. And so she and I went to the first um, environmental justice uh, national conference. I had written long ago. I'd written a paper on on the pollution in um, North Carolina, where uh, and uh, and which had gotten a lot um, uh, had gotten a lot of play in the environmental in the emerging environmental justice work. So even though I really wasn't I wasn't born into that movement, I really Beverly Wright and others brought me along into it, and I began to do trainings in the South um, on toxic chemicals and all. And that opened up this avenue for me to really reach out to and become involved with people like Richard Moore and, um, and a lot of the uh, folks who were, who would eventually become part of coming clean um, after the, after the um, uh, Louisville charter um, uh, was initially written. So you, you weren't, so you weren't in war, you weren't part of the Warren County protest. I wasn't part of the Warren County protest, but I wrote this article which documented it. And then... Um, and how did you know about that? How did that... You know, I... How did you come to know about that? I, I think it was through NTC. I think I had met some of the activists in one of the dump site communities in the Carolinas, and they had invited me down to be, to be at the Warren County um, uh, activities and. And then I sort of wrote this paper with another fellow chemist. And I know that Bob Bullard used that as one of his training materials and stuff like that. So it was kind of, I found myself more respected in the EJ community than I actually think I deserved to have been um, because I wasn't, I'd stumbled into it. uh, But of course, I, I, felt very dedicated to the folks that who who I was working with but it just I felt like god all I did was write a paper you know and like, anyhow so the next thing was really trying to think about how to build this movement more and uh you know people were getting Gary Cohen was was starting to do some sectoral organizing in the healthcare sector which was pretty interesting i thought Bill Walsh invited me to work with him on the creation of the Healthy Building Network, which was in the architecture and 
construction area. You know, eventually um, I would get involved with the apparel industry and the sustainable apparel um, movement itself and the uh, zero discharge, uh, hazardous waste or hazardous chemicals sort of phenomena. So these are all different sectors where organizations are growing up to focus on how to get reduce or eliminate toxic chemical use in that particular sector, right? In a sector, not just a firm, but in a sector. And I was, and, you know, I was working with Ted Smith around, around, um, around the electronics um, uh, sector itself, because California was the other leading, um, was even much more a leading um, uh, set, uh, area for the electronics area. And then we began to talk about how can we take what we were learning about these dialogues we were setting up in Massachusetts amongst industries and all, and really build something more. And, and Joel started the uh, Green Chemistry, GC3, the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council. Marx started the BizNGO um, uh, network and all, both of which were examples of bringing people together to kind of share things. Mike Bellavo and others were developing safer states to again bring people from the states you listed quite a while ago together, the leading states. They felt uh, they needed needed a vehicle uh, for um, trying to bring the staffs of those states together. So Mike approached me about setting up this thing, which became the Interstate Chemicals Clearinghouse. Right. Um, uh, which, you know, was bringing the staff people of the states, much like we had done with the pollution prevention staff, we could set up around the, the chemical staff of the states together to begin to build more links between things. So I was always trying to figure it. By this point, I was realizing that it was the power was in these coalitions and all. So that was, I think, another step in the thing. Again, that was... I wouldn't say that I was an architect of that so much as I was learning it and trying to to foster what I could um, around supporting others and doing it. Um, by now, in particular, be realized that my skills uh, are not as a charismatic leader. My skills are much more as a teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. And so... I never really wanted to be in the front of these kind of institutions that we were building. I wanted to be the maybe the backboard members or the teachers of these things. And because my students were so gifted in so many ways, um, it gave me a great role of being able to be there for great supporting great people, but not trying to be a, a visible leader so much. And, and that just fits my personality much, much better. Well, and it's, it's a great way to be extremely important and effective without there, there, we need charismatic leaders for this movement and other movements, but it can also be a little crowded and um, <laughs> a little, a little, you know, competitive. And so without needing that piece for yourself, then that arguably gave you more, room and opportunity to branch out. So you were saying that uh, Joel Tickner and Mark Rossi were both students of yours. Did I get that right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, 
are others, and Sally Edwards, you said, so other students who have gone on to do this work, uh, are there others? Well, I mentioned to you, Gina McCarthy. Um, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't, uh, Annie wasn't, Annie Leonard wasn't really a student of mine, but she was an intern at Greenpeace when I was on the board. I took a great love of Annie and, you know, I, when Annie set out to set up Story of Stuff, she gave my book credit. She said, look, I tried to talk about Materials Matter and people just didn't understand it. They needed a film. And, and so she said, I want to do a film and I want you to advise me on this. So um, I think of Annie as kind of, I, I like to think of myself as mentoring Annie to certain degree, but that was just an act of pleasure. So say a little bit about the reductions that have gone on just in Massachusetts through Tory, the Toxic Use Reduction Act. Like how, what, what are the changes that firms are making? And I mean, they're still making them. There's, there's been, I guess I should ask that as a question. Is it right that there, there continue to be toxic use reductions as a result of the implementation of that law over this 30 year period? And what, what are the changes that are being made at firms to, to drive down the use of toxic chemicals? Yeah, um, because the tour program has an annual reporting requirement on the use of the chemicals, they, firms must report on the use of the chemical in the, the use, actual use. They must report on the amount that they ship in the product, and they must report on the amount they admit to the environment. There's three things that they have to report. Um, so you can pretty well track a lot of what's going on. Um, it's like a mass balance. It's like a mass balance. In fact, we trained on the basis of mass balance. Yes. Uh, uh, so, um, and, and of course that also was a way to keep people from cheating <laughs> because on their, because it had to all balance out in the end. Right. right. Um, uh, had to go somewhere as we'd say, had to go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what we've seen is like a overall, like a 42 to 46% reduction in the 190 chemicals that the program actually focuses on. If you look at the chlorinated solvents, largely a 92 to 98% reduction in the use of those solvents in production operations. The emissions reductions are in the high 90s. Um, There's still product, chemicals that go into products, um, a bit less. You can see a difference amongst chemicals. For instance, the chlorinated solvents, as I mentioned, um, uh, a bunch of the halogenated chemicals have been replaced by other chemicals. Uh, Lead, which is, of course, one of the chemicals. Uh, We've never been able to do very well with lead. Lead... Where it's used, it is used because it is, works best. And uh, we managed to work in the electronics industry to get a lot of shifting toward lead-free um, um, soldering, uh, which was a big use of lead. But other points of lead have been really hard to deal with. Hmm. But chemicals, older chemicals like arsenic and chromium and, and cadmium down significantly. And is is it... The case in Massachusetts that industry just accepts it, it's there, or is there a lot of pushback or there attempts there have been attempts to weaken it over the years legislatively or Yeah, sure. Every year. 
<laughs> but we do. We're, we learn how to be exceedingly clever. Um, we, uh, we provide awards every year uh-huh. to the, to the firm. Well, we did two things we created. I realized fairly soon that we were doing a lot of great work, but our advocates, our advocacy base, the community, the advocates and the communities that really supported us didn't have a place in the program. So we said, well, we're going to open up a community talk, uh, community toxics use reduction program. And so each year the Institute puts out a certain amount of money that's awarded competitively to communities around Massachusetts for them to show how they can reduce the use of toxic chemicals in everything from municipal operations to uh, lawn care to household stuff to schools and everything. So every year there's money that goes out to the communities. The communities feel the presence of that money. Yeah. Second thing is we make awards of the five leading firms that did the most this year. We do it at a luncheon at the state house, which is open to all legislators to come in. So we provide legislators this big grand lunch and also every legislature, every legislator knows the luncheons are great. <laughs> we we are and we're on. We always do really well with the advocates in the in the in the state house itself. So that's great. Yeah, and so through most of this time, say eighty six, well, almost up to the present, nothing's going on federally of any. Maybe not nothing, nothing, but little is going on of great significance. The Toxic Substance Control Act is moribund. Uh, they're reviewing new chemicals, so you, you could say something there. But uh, even that had had and has major, <laughs> major flaws uh, in how they're doing that. Um, so really, the state, this whole uh, yeah universe or constellation, I guess, of, of organizations fanning out and building up and interconnecting and um, some working with industry directly like biz NGO and others doing more state-based advocacy or what have you. That's all, that's really the kind of the I'm mixing metaphors now, but sort of the, whatever the blood and circulatory system of the U S toxics movement. Isn't that, you think that's yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. I think we successfully built you know, not a not a revolutionary vanguard movement, but a a popular and professional movement of um, uh, of uh, a force at the state and and industry levels that has moved a lot of of reductions in use of chemicals. I mean, you know, you go to the the NGO meet, the biz NGO meetings, or the GC three meetings, or I'm a part of something called the Clean Electronics Production. The CPEN uh, network, which is Apple and, and Dell and HP and Philips and others who are focused on reducing the solvents used in the production operations in China and, and Mexico and meet, meet uh, biannually to do, you know, th- those kind of things have been successful. And I think we have, I think that this movement has been very successful given what we have done and, and the amount of people 
talent and, and funding that's gone into it has been terrific. And the work is going on. The movement has gone well beyond an upstart movement. It, it is an, a mature and successful movement. And, and, you know, there are, with the exception of the Exxons and others, there are a lot of leading corporations that are trying to figure out how to reduce the use of major chemicals. That's probably a great place to end it. Did you have anything else you wanted to say or any, any other? Um... <laughs> well, you kept me talking a long time. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, I feel like we barely, I mean, yes. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface. There's so much that we didn't get to and things we did, even that there's so much more to say. You've, you've really, um, you know, you've made sustainability in the broad sense, your, your work. Mm -hmm for this whole period. And it's, there's just so much there, so much still, still to do, but so much that's been done. And, yeah, um, yeah. Right. I do. I do. I do feel that, that we've done a, we've done a lot. I feel good about it. I feel like, you know, that it was that, uh, I worked with a lot of really terrific people and we built a lot of great organization and we did, we were true and honest in our commitment to building a movement um, that could link a lot of people that didn't bifurcate, did not, I mean, yeah, there are little factions all over the place, but, but really has a, I mean, it really is held together as a, a, a spirited group of people um, who've really been at, had the same kind of vision. And I think that that's been a real treasure um, and, a, and a story worth telling. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.